0: This is a and X, and this is the candid frame. Well, it's almost Thanksgiving, which means the whole holiday season is upon us. And, uh, I wanted to share this special interview before Thanksgiving here in the States with one of my favorite photographers, Joel Meyerwitz. He's just released a retrospective book called taking my time, which spans the decades that he has been making pictures and, uh, for those people who have been listening to the show for a while, you know that Joel is making his second appearance on The Candid Frame. And when I saw that this book was out, I thought it was a just the perfect opportunity to have a chance to sit down and talk with him. Um, he's one of my favorite people to interview, and if you've never heard a conversation with Joel, in a few minutes you're going to discover why. But I really want to encourage you, uh, you guys to take a listen and really take in what he has to share. The insights he brings into the art and craft of photography uh, are for me invaluable and I think that uh, you'll not only enjoy the conversation but take a, a lot away uh, from it as well. So uh, for those of you who are in the United States and are listening to this show before Thursday Happy Thanksgiving and to the rest of you, I hope that you sit down and enjoy this great conversation with Joel Meyerwitz. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Adobe Photoshop Lightroom 4. Perfect your photography from shoot to finish with Adobe Photoshop Lightroom 4 software. Now, I for me, there's no better software for any photographer than Lightroom 4. From organizing and editing your images, to processing them, to creating a slideshow, or even creating a book, Lightroom is your one-stop shopping for everything photographic. And... This is gonna be a great time for those of you who've not had the opportunity to try this software. That's because Adobe is offering its Lightroom one day deal on Friday, November 23rd to obtain Lightroom for just $99. So this amazing software on this one day is gonna be available for less than a hundred bucks and provides you all the versatility and control that you could ever imagine you would want as a photographer. To take advantage of this, all you need to do is go to adobe.com and use the promotion code BFDAY2012. Again, that's BFDAY2012. And if for whatever reason you're listening to this show after Friday and you still want to take advantage of the software... There's going to be a Lightroom savings on Saturday, November 24th until November 28th, where you will still save $30 off the full version of of Adobe Photoshop Lightroom 4 and for a purchase price of just $119. And for that, all you need to do is use the promo code BF2012. So whether you're taking advantage of it Friday or before the end of November, please do so and discover the wonderful things that Adobe Lightroom has to offer. Well, Joel, welcome again to The Candid Frame. I'm really excited about having the chance to talk to you again. No, Baron, it's the same for me. I've been looking forward to this. Congratulations on on the book. You have this this new book, which is a retrospective of of your career, and I know you're excited about it. And uh, I thought that would be a great launching pad for another conversation with you. Um, One of the things I wanted to start off with is I, I got a chance to read that little sort of comic book uh, picture story that you did mm-hmm. about some time with your dad. And one of the things I picked up from that was your observation to him that he's the one who really taught you how to see. And though I I, I know I'm, I'm familiar with the story about how you get into photography as a result of seeing Robert Frank work, I was I'm really curious to hear about what you learned from your father in terms of how you learned to observe the world?
1: Hmm. It's a great question, about it. You know, my dad was a, a native New Yorker, a real street guy. And when I was a kid, he was uh, basically drove a truck and then he was a salesman. And, uh, and he was out on the streets all the time and he watched the way life on the streets took shape, a kind of, um, you know, the comedy of errors that life is. And when I was a little kid, everywhere we went together, my father would always, you know, sort of touch my shoulder or just, you know, point me in direction, say, watch, watch this, look at this. And as soon as he would point to something, it happened. Two people would bump into each other or they'd have a little fight or somebody would slip on the proverbial banana peel. Or He was always reading the text of the street scene in front of him, knowing that something was possible here. And was it likely? Mm, He just says, you know, watch this and see what happens. And in a way, that kind of innocent enthusiasm, because he was nothing if not enthusiastic and joyous about life in New York, that kind of enthusiasm gave me a sense, a childish sense of anticipation if you looked, something would fall from the sky. And and in a way, it wasn't that much different from the movies of my youth, which were slapstick comedies, you know, the Three Stooges, the Marx Brothers, Laurel and Hardy, uh, Charlie Chaplin. All those films in the 40s when I was a kid were um, sort of the stuff of everyday life. And I guess... Between him and these films and uh, comic books, I had a sense of the kind of narrative that was underlying ordinary reality. All you had to do was pay attention to it, and it would tell you
0: its story. You you know, that that gives me such insight into your, your breadth of work. Because when I look at it, particularly when I was looking at some of the earlier work that you have in in the book, it struck me how you had a sense of the relationship of all the things in your frame to each other. That, that it wasn't just about this subject that existed within the space. It always seemed that it was about how this subject or the focus of your attention was given context by the environment around it. And did you find that it came naturally to sort of translate that vision that you had learned from your father into the context of the frame when you raised the camera to your eye? Or did you struggle trying to, you know, blend those things together?
1: I I think it's an incredible question that you're
0: asking because it's at the heart
1: of, well, of all photography, really. But, you know, different people make the frame and the content in different ways that suit their personalities. And sure, when I first picked up the camera and I knew nothing about photography, I I tried to put an object in the frame. You know, oh, look, here's a person standing here. I'll try to put a nice frame around them. And, and within, really, within a month or two months of working like that, I realized this is too easy. It's like shooting a bullseye. You know, you stick it in the middle of the rectangle and then you got a picture. But it's more or less a copy of an object or a person. And I kept on feeling that there was a greater dynamic that was part of this text of the street. And I think I understood basically in a native and intuitive way that what interested me was this relationship that you so accurately point out. That it was this thing seen against that building. Or these two people coming down the street and the space in between them was made dynamic because one was big and one was small or they were intersecting in some way. And and I I think that it was so attractive to me, this kind of anticipation of the union between disparate things, which is all a frame does. You know, the the world is 360 degrees in all axes, and the camera sees about 70 degrees of it. So when you put a frame while you're moving down the street, when you move that frame in the space, you bring things that do not relate to each other into a framed connection, That seemed to me to be the power, the hidden and mysterious power and beauty of photography. And once I got wind of that, it's all I wanted to do was to see how many discontinuous things I could assemble in a frame and make a new kind of content. A powerful discovery to a young man.
0: It's interesting when they look at those early images, whether they were shot in black and white or in color, is how you used space in very different ways. There are certain images where you are right there. You're in the midst of this dynamic or this interaction between people. And then there are other shots where you're very, you're much further back. But unlike a lot of images that I see from Pleasant Street photographers where, where that distance is a result of discomfort about appro- approaching and getting closer. It seemed like you were really aware in terms of how that figure sort of factored in to everything within the space, especially on the street. And, and I could really see how the street scene itself became as much of a character as the persons or persons that were, that were, the, that seemed to be the focus of the photograph.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's one of these learning um, points in your life—a tipping point, you could say, using vernacular of today. Um, in the beginning, one tries to—I tried—to be more uh, bold and get over my native shyness because I was a shy kid. And handling a camera and being in a crowd—I mean, it's—it's—it's it's, 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 um, intimidating sometimes, and, and a lot of people are afraid. Of getting into the mix like that. They're either afraid that someone's going to be assaultive or insulting to them or that they were going to be too aggressive to people. So we, we all have a kind of social poise that we use. But I was trying to learn to break through that without bruising the situation, but learning how to get in close and be invisible. And once I... I got my sea legs, so to speak, doing that. And I felt comfortable doing it. I certainly explored it. But then, in 1964, I took my first trip with my own wheels. I had hitched around America down to Mexico one summer. Another summer, I hitched all over the south. And in 64, I had an old Volkswagen truck that I made into a kind of a a little camper. And I went around the country, and I found myself in big spaces, western spaces, and things were sometimes really far away. And I suddenly felt this kind of both a question and a confidence that one could make a picture of something far away. And if the reader of this photograph was like me, interested and curious, it wouldn't nece- you know, necessarily need to be something up close and in your face. You could make images about space and scale. And I think the realization of that was one of those tipping points where I grew suddenly. And I remember clearly coming back from that trip and printing like crazy for months and then going down to John Sharkovsky at the Museum of Modern Art. He was the curator then. And he was, for my generation, the, the, uh, the Socratic dialectician. I mean, he argued with us and drew us out in very interesting ways and I think educated my whole generation. But I remember showing John some pictures of things far away and I said to him, you know, I showed these to Gary and uh, Gary Wingrand and and Gary didn't like him, too far away, didn't didn't get it. And John said, well, you know, Gary doesn't know everything about That's photography. Cool. He said and, and I he said I think it's important because it's a sign of maturity when a photographer can relax his grip on shoving your face into it and step back a little bit so something has space and air and you get a sense of the entirety of the content he said that's like your first phase of your growth and development as a real photographic artist and in a sense he validated that experience that I got from just being in nature that way and and it allowed me to um, sort of analyze and operate within this new understanding until, you know, years later, 10 years later in the 70s when I made a kind of second breakthrough for myself in terms of the way I wanted to work on the street. I I felt like it was a real invention of mine for myself. So you never know in your own development where this kind of uh, fresh, beginning will come from from what uh from
0: what experience will this new understanding about the medium emerge talk, talk about what you just mentioned that transition in terms of what you were doing on the street with what, what was what were you before and what did you feel like you were becoming after that particular moment in in the 70s and what, and what triggered it
1: so again you never know where the question be prompted from during during the 60s John Tchaikovsky wrote this book called looking at photographs you've probably seen it it's a collection of 100 essays from the museum's collection of photography and he, he took 100 pictures and wrote 100 short essays I was fortunate to have a picture in that book actually one of the la- maybe the next to the last picture in the book I squeaked in under the wire <coughs> And and reading those essays, time and again, John would come up and say the word description. And one of the things he had written was, look, all a photograph does is it describes what's in front of the camera when we press the button. And I kept on thinking, God, that's so simple. That's all a camera does. It describes what you pointed at. Of course, it's describing you. As well as the thing that you 're pointing it at, but my question came well if if description is what photography is about isn 't it true that description in color has or, or photograph in color has more description it describes more things because it 's not using the um, the Diminished palette of grays to describe a blue sky and a yellow raincoat and a green grass and a, and a red stoplight and all the stuff that's in there that we take for granted. And you know, I started in 1962, my very first year. I only shot color because A, I didn't know any better, and, and B, the world was in color. And I, and I thought, why shouldn't I take color photographs? I mean, it didn't occur to me that black and white was a choice. Only later on when I realized that serious photography was black and white, and if you wanted to make prints and be taken seriously, black and white was the way to do it, because color printing in 62 was inefficient and... Not, not stable, and it was too expensive. I didn't have the money. I was a kid who was out of work. So at a certain point, you know, in the in the course of this book, you'll see that I even tried shooting two cameras, black and white and color, at the same time during the middle 60s so that I could analyze the whys of why, fit, why color, why black and white. How, how does color work versus black and white? Anyway, by, by the late 60s or early 70s, I decided I want to only shoot color from now on. And um, when I did that, I started to see that the tactics that I learned on the street using black and white wouldn't hold for color. Because with black and white, you could use ASA... 400 triacs and rated up at 1200. And you could have from three feet to infinity in focus. But in color, with an ASA of 25 and Kodachrome, you had nothing. It would have been a blur anywhere past eight feet on, on Fifth Avenue at a, after a certain time of day. So I found myself taking a different strategy. I had to step back further from the plane that I used to photograph in, which was everything from eight to 10 feet out. I needed to be back further if I wanted the buildings and the sky and the sidewalks and all of the people, if I wanted to knit together the, the descriptive power of Kodachrome two and the deep space of, of the urban landscape, I wanted it all. And so I found myself giving up the hook that most photographs had, which was an incident that seemed to be the thing that the photograph was about. And by giving up the incident and using a more simultaneous across-the-field picture, I started to make what I called at the time field photographs. Everything in the field was content rather than something that had a hierarchy and was more important content as opposed to its important background. I wanted to say there is no background or foreground. There's only the figure ground of the entire space. And I I was hoping that these pictures would describe for anyone in the future what the urban space of New York looked like at precisely that moment. And I think that giving up the action and incident was a huge step because I knew how to do that. That's like suddenly saying, you know, you, you cannot use a certain word in your vocabulary. You have to work around this word. And although it left a, a, a hole, it produced a new volume for me, a new way of looking and being in the city. And I I feel like it was what ultimately led me on to the view camera.
0: Mm. Before we get into that into the view camera, you you mentioned Gary Winogrand. And um, I've watched, there's several videos of you shooting on the street, and there are a few of of Gary. And it's really interesting to see the different techniques that I can observe from watching the videos. When I watch the the videos of you, I can see you sort of hunkering down on a spot. Watching and observing as things are happening around you and, you know, tapping into that sort of anticipation that you, that you mentioned previously and sort of waiting for things to come to you sometimes. And what few things I've seen of Gary, he seems to always sort of be on the hunt, uh, constantly, constantly moving. Um, searching in, in a very much a different way, and I, I'm and I'm kind of curious to hear your your observations in terms of those different types of approaches. Because though you're both often categorized as street photographers, I think your work is is markedly different for a variety of different reasons. But I'm specifically interested in in just the technique in terms of how you are physically within active within within the space, particularly the street. Absolutely.
1: Uh, first, I should note that Gary and I spent three years every day that we were in New York together out on the streets, prowling, stalking, walking up and down Fifth Avenue all day long and in and out of MoMA through Central Park, I mean, in the side streets. We were constantly on the move together. And at a certain point, we were joined by Todd Papa George when he he came to New York in 1965 and he spent a couple of years with us doing the same thing and then I went to live in Europe for a year and, and Gary and Todd prowled the streets on their own. Um, but that year in Europe, and I, I had a year to myself and I, and I suddenly discovered my own way of looking at the world and my own timings. You know, When I came back to New York I felt like First of all, I needed to be on my own more rather than part of a group, although our it was very, very important to all of us. Um, I felt year had given me a different perspective. And uh, although I prowled exactly the way I had done with Gary up and down the streets, there was that point in the in the 70s when I started to feel I needed this different space. And one of the ways that, I was able to articulate that space was to find corners that moved me because the light was a certain way or the scale of the corner or the look that I could get in the cross streets and on the avenues because, you know, New York's a grid. And so if you put yourself someplace, the mix of people, the density of the intersection right at that corner – would make a fabric of of a near and a deep space that was very interesting to me. So as I was trying to prove this theory of mine about deeper space rendition using color, because remember Gary was shooting black and white mm-hmm. at the time. And so you, you didn't have to worry about depth of field. You had it as a given. So I found that I needed to... Stay in a locus for longer periods of time and just see if I could make this new idea work. That I didn't have to be strolling as much as, you know, staying in a, in a limited zone where I could make an optimum, um, description of these issues that I thought I was taking on. And, you know, I, I say that humbly when I say I thought I was taking on because really these are conceits that every artist arrives at at some point in their development. They say to themselves, well, I need to do this because, and then you have your rationale for doing it. And then like an experimenter or a scientist, you do it again and again and again until you prove to yourself how this system that you're putting into effect really works, and does it yield results for you? So I, I would say that I I moved from one kind of uh, restless uh, strolling behavior to something that was a little more um, calibrated to trying to make the idea that I was working with hold up for me. Um, And, and I have to admit that in, in, at this point in my life, when I'm out on the street, I do both. I walk and comb and shoot and then hang on corners if the light is nice or the day is great or the, you know, the energy feels good. I, I still do this. And I'm looking for very different things now. I'm looking from the eyes of a 74 year old artist rather than from A 35-year-old artist its very, very different.
0: Mm. You mentioned the the view camera, and I'm wondering how this, was this sort of lingering that you started to do after you come back from Europe? How did that start leaning you towards using the larger format? Because the way you have to be present with that camera is so much different than when you're working with a 35-millimeter rangefinder. Or were there other things that were really spurring you to start exploring the palette of using, you know, an 8x10 view camera? It
1: it really came from the initial question about if color describes more things, what do I want from color? And what happened was in the early 70s when I was making all this new color work, I was making dye transfer prints at 24 inches, and uh, and they were good prints, but they were so expensive. And I really wanted to print. I had a color darkroom by then. I really wanted to print color myself. And I, I had the feeling that in order to get the descriptive power that I wanted, I needed to get a bigger camera. So I got a 6x7 Fujika, a 6x9 Fujika camera, and I loaded it with color negative film, and I was making with it, but it was so slow. The lens was f8. And in New York, if you're working at f8, you're going to have almost no depth. That was the widest opening was f8. And so on the street, it was almost impossible. At some point, I thought, shit, if I'm going to have to put a camera on a tripod, I might as well get the biggest camera I can get. And I actually went looking for an 11 by 14, which I found. But Kodak would only make 11. 11- Fourteen film. If you bought the entire run, and that run was something like twenty thousand dollars, and oh. I didn't have twenty thousand dollars to buy a run of film. So I, I got an eight by ten camera, and I thought, okay, I, I, I think I can make you know, really descriptive things with this. And I took myself away to Cape Cod for one summer, thinking, okay, there is a little town, province town. It feels like 8th Street in the village in New York City. It's got great street energy, so I could do my street work. And it has place for my kids, and it's got nice landscape and light. And, you know, I wasn't thinking anything about landscape. I was thinking about working on the street with the 8x10. Anyway, I discovered that there was a whole other dimension to my personality and that I could express that through the view camera on Cape Cod and it was those revelations where you try to do something and instead you get some other result from it and this, this new instrument allowed me uh, on the very f- two weeks after I Started using this camera. I flew back to New York with about 50 sheets of film. I processed the film and I started making contacts. And I was so excited by the, by the contacts that I took a few of the negatives down to my lab and I had them make four foot prints for me. I was so knocked out by the quality of a four foot print. And this is 1976. Nobody Nobody was printing big. And I brought the prints up to the Museum of Modern Art. And and John was on the phone inside and I I pinned these four foot prints to his wooden cabinets, his studies, his study center cabinets. And I then I went in and I got him and I said, John, John, come out, I want to show you. And I showed him these three four-foot prints, two landscapes and a portrait. And and he stood there with his pipe. And he looked at the photographs and he looked at me and he said, why so big? <laughs> <laughs> and I remember, I remember that, that kind of frustration because I had the contacts with me too. And I, I, I said to him, John, and I handed him the contacts. And I said, because everything that's in here is so, it has so much capacity to go even bigger than these four feet. I said, the future of photography is going to have large scale, Prints in it, because that's what's happening. Color is moving in that direction. And I had been arguing color with him since the sixties. And, you know, he wasn't that accepting of color at that at that point. So it was one of those interesting moments in which I had this revelation that all of that exquisite detail was going to be available to us without grain, without buzz, without noise. It was just going to be pure beauty and uh and look where we are today
0: yeah Well, one of the interesting images that are, are not so much street photography of the landscapes that you did of the shore yeah and it's really interesting because there you get to see the emphasis not only on color that you just spoke of but also just the, the relative nuances of space and and i and i think that one of the things that you talk about and i think is sort of exhibited in here is the whole idea of time because yeah. you know photographers work within fractions of a second, but I think beyond that sometimes we're not thinking about how our cameras sort of capture that, even with a uh, a landscape scene in in that way. Can you talk about that especially with these with these uh, images that you were doing? yeah you know wh-
1: wh- one of the things that occurred to me i hadn't really considered before one day i was i was making made- we have a long time exposure photograph with the 8x10 camera and it was going to be like 10 minutes and I was in an interior in St. Louis in a big station so I went for a walk around the station with my stopwatch in my hand and at some point I was up on a second level of the station and I looked down and I could see my camera in the corner of the station in the dark mm-hmm. making this faithful exposure. And I thought, my God, the camera is soaking up all of this darkness. It's letting light come in and play on the film plane. And I thought to myself, there's a, um, th- there's a formula here. Time is light. And that's what the universe is built out of. Light travels out so many Thousands of miles per second, one hundred eighty-six thousand miles a second. So light and time are, un- are in unison in some way, and it, in a way, in a way, it amplified my understanding of what light was all about, and it made me more vulnerable to the way I considered space and the way light. Um, defined our space for us. and and the way a camera takes these three dimensions and particularly the illusion of three dimensions and, and flattens it into two dimensions and that these were considerations that shouldn't just be taken for granted but that once you stand in a big space a volume or a a, a deep, bold space, particularly at the water's edge where there's a horizon X number of miles, 21 miles away, or something like that, that, that y- you are responsible for describing everything in this space. And if you're conscious of it, then the tiniest little details are going to play on your sensibility in a fresh way which means your vocabulary about what you see and say photographically is going to be enhanced in, in possibly a new way for you. Certainly for me, it, it did that. And so I began to notice things in a different um, manner and to to trust that sometimes the smallest thing far away in the frame, would have a kind of equivalent power to something nearby, as long as it was me who recognized it. And If you don't recognize it, if you just think you're only seeing that object that we talked about in the beginning, put it in the bullseye in the middle of the frame, then you're not seeing dimensionally. You're seeing in a relatively flat, uh, object-centered way, Rather than in a spatial continuous way, and so I just found myself opening up to the next player of understanding about photographic time and space
0: when you started doing portraits and I, you're always doing, probably always doing portraits, but there, there are a series of portraits that you you 're really known for, particularly like the Redhead series and and how did that, all that, all of that that we were talking about, a sense of color and sense of time, uh, and sense of the moment, how did that inform what you ended up doing when it came to making pictures of, of people?
1: Mm-hmm. These are really lovely questions, Ibarra next. I have to say, you really are a wonderful interviewer. Oh, thanks. Because it, it, they all have, questions to consider. All of these changes of subject matter. I mean, I always made a kind of street portrait, but I never thought of them as portraits because they were on the fly, because there wasn't a kind of contract with the person. Um, They didn't know that I was taking their picture. started looking around with the 8x10 view camera. I was suddenly visible. In a way that I had, in the years prior to that, practiced being invisible, and so now people would come over to me and say, "Hey, what are you doing with that eight by that big, big box? Or why do you put your head under that dark cloth? and And can I take a look? And And before you know it, you know, you're you're being observed by everybody. You're no longer this solitary, invisible uh, artist. And and so after that happened any number of times, I instead of resisting, I remembered distinctly some uh a, attractive, interesting woman speaking to me about this, and she was standing right in front of me in hard sunlight, and as she was talking, I was looking at her and I was seeing, you know, the the furrows over her brow and the, the, the tinkle of light in her hair and her cleavage and the way her shorts were pulled up into her crotch and the way, you know, her, her uh, you know, her, the way everything fit her. And, and I suddenly thought, oh, my God, she's fantastic. And she was only an ordinary person, but suddenly this human creature in front of me was like a landscape Inside of a person. And I said to her, Listen, could I make a portrait of you right here, right now? She said, Well, sure. And, and she said, What do you want me to do? And I said, well, well, just stand here and make yourself as comfortable as you can be. And, you know, I focused the camera and everything. And then the magic happened. I said to her, You, you cannot move because I'm going to step aside, put the film in the camera. So you can't change your position because this is an old instrument. And I remember standing alongside the camera and staring at her and watching her um, relating to herself in the lens, looking as she was trying to find her integrity, her personality, her confidence, or whatever the hell it was that she was trying to find. And then I saw her come together in a moment of kind of, exposure really a clarification and i remember just pressing the shutter release and feeling the camera slurp it up and i thought ah, portraiture is a whole other thing mm. you get these people to release themselves to the camera While you're alongside, this isn't celebrity portraiture where you have them dance their little jig in front of you while you bob and weave and tell them how beautiful they are. This is a moment of solitude in public where a person has a kind of intimate relationship with the camera that they have with their mirror in the morning. And I just thought it was a revelation to me. And I immediately went and I looked at the portraits of August Sonder and, um, and Atjay, people who use the view camera to try to understand what was it that these artists were able to do with strangers out in public? What was the call, you know? And I learned that they were, um, even though they were decisive in everything, they were humanists. They they believed in the integrity of their subjects. They didn't try to make fools out of them or to turn them into some kind of a you know a twisted uh, pretzel. Um, there, there was no allure. They just stood their ground and they let the human beings speak. So I think human dignity was a uh, a big part of their program, and I think I, I found to my to myself that this is what was coming to me in a kind of natural
0: way. Mm. Did you find that after a time of making the portraits that your the way that you perceived and maybe chose people when you were back shooting street photography changed? Did did somehow the fact that these people in, in one particular type of photograph were sort of sitting there for you and allowed you to sort of take them in in a certain way, start informing how you started seeing people, even if you didn't approach them and ask them to make a formal portrait of them while you were just walking down the street sort of hunting for photographs? Mm-hmm. Totally. Different. So, uh, I I mean, we get it, you know.
1: Do, in a way, single themselves out to you. You find your in- other matches some kind of internal um, uh, understanding that you have, it's like, and the other. It's very different. The timing of the street and that that um, that other issue we spoke about before, which was more or less the relationship between um, people and place and timing, incident, all of that is very different from the singular connection to an individual the one on one thing, and so the way I chose those people on the you know that I made the portraits of the formal portraits was pure instinct. I would walk down the street and suddenly one person it was almost as if they had an aura, not that they did, but they they spoke to me their um, their presence, their vulnerability, their tenderness, their edginess, their confidence. I mean, I suppose what it is, but someone projects ahead of them this uh, anima, this soul. and And, you know, you could feel it. You walk into a cocktail party. It's the same thing. You look around the room, you don't know anybody in the room. You've been invited to this party. You look around the room and you say, Who? Who am I going to go talk to? And suddenly, one person more than someone else seems to you to be the person that you could begin with. I don't know why. Everybody's different. But you make your way over to that person because you can feel their, um, their potential for you. They resonate with you. And I think it's that you know, momentary resonance that is a clue to mutual identity that the two might share or something that's held in common by you. I'm I, I don't you know, I'm sure there are plenty of portrait photographers who love finding the antagonistic and just go after somebody because they're different. They're truly other rather than in some way similar. So, And that's an interesting lever to um, evaluate portrait photographers
0: by. Well, tell us about the book, how that came about, and and what what was your hope for it when you first started the, the project? Because I, I don't doubt, since it says a retrospective of so much work, that in some ways it was a, it was a daunting task.
1: It was. It was uh, much bigger and longer than I had uh, anticipated, but an enrichment that I'm so happy that I went through at this point. I was reintroduced to the various me's, Along the way, you know, the 24-year-old me and the 29-year-old living in Europe, me, you know, searching to become a man. And so many different, the the parent me, um, the the theorist me. But I'll tell you how it came about because it's a story I think a lot of photographers would wish could happen to them. And I'm so grateful it happened to me. You know, I've done a lot of books. This is my, I think, 18th or 19th book. So in in 2001, I was working inside Ground Zero, and I was on a television program in London. A friend of mine was a big newscaster in London, and I asked him to come over, and I would sneak him into Ground Zero. Anyway, we did, and he ran this program. And a couple of days later, I get a call from a guy named Richard Schlagman, who was the owner of Fiden Books. Fiden's the big art book in London, for those of you who don't know. And, and he said, look, I'm flying over to New York tomorrow. I want to have breakfast with you. So he comes to New York and we sit down for breakfast and he says, uh, I, I want you to do a book on Ground Zero with me. He said, and I want to be your publisher from now on. He said, and the first thing I want to talk to you about is a retrospective book. He said, because I know you're and you've done Cape Light and St. Louis and Wildflowers and this and that and Summer's Day. He said, and you've got all these different books. He said, but the art world doesn't know you in an integrated way. All of the work that you do, your black and white work, your street color work. He said, there's so much of your work that's not out there. He said, and I want to produce the book that does that for you. You can't imagine how incredible that made me feel. Because when does a publisher nowadays come to you and says, I I I wanna I wanna gather all of your work and introduce you in a way that you haven't been seen before? He offered that retrospective book and it was uh, I mean an offer that, that it took um almost 10 years from the moment that he offered it for me to get around to actually do, which was about four years ago that I started. And it was an incredible process of, of, first of all, deciding what do I want to do with a retrospective book? Do I want to make this, you know, my favorites or my best pictures? And I thought to myself, that's not what this is. This is, A retrospective is an autobiography in a way, and you don't know how many of them you're going to do in your life. Probably one is enough, unless I live another 20 years and have a a lot of work. But I, I just thought, okay, I'm going to look at this work and I'm going to try to show the arc of my own evolution over the last 50 years at the same time as photography has come into a kind of predominance. Because 50 years ago when I started, no one gave a shit about photography. It was a craft. It was hardly taken seriously as an art form. It wasn't taught in the schools. It, it, there were very few departments in museums or in universities about photography. I mean, I mean MoMA uh, hired John Tchaikovsky in 1962. And, and he sort of began this evolution of photography. So in a way, the 50 years that I've been working has been a 50-year um, art photography that's brought it into a kind of prominence
0: now where it ranks seriously in the art world. What was the biggest surprise that you learned about Joel Meyerwitz as a result of putting this book together? What, had, what, what, did, what was revealed to you that even though you had been living with these images for so long that you looked at it and you went, I didn't realize that about... Not just my work, but myself.
1: Well, that's a, it's a very complex question. I I think what, what I, what I came away with was that I, I, I guess I always knew that photography, although it looks like pictures, was also about ideas. What I hadn't realized was the kinds of ideas that had appeared to me along the way like the signposts over a 50-year journey through a life, along the way certain questions came up about the medium. And I could see by looking at the pictures that there was a certain innocence to me right from the beginning in that I yielded to the medium. and, And I felt like in some ways I was a servant of the medium because, you know, if you serve... Like if, if you want to be a Zen Buddhist, sometimes you'll go and you'll be, sit with a teacher and you'll just wash the dishes for five years, right? And, and he'll occasionally swack you on the back of your neck and say, wake up. And I think photography, I, by serving photography, I woke up now and then to the ideas that offer themselves simply because I serve the medium. And I made a kind of internal observation about um, the medium appeared to me. And that raised the next question. And I, I structured the book in a sense as a series of 12 chapters. Each one posed a question. And very often the question involved letting go or giving up the thing that I had learned to do well before. And sort of stepping out into the next space, and seeing what would happen if I could let go of everything that I had um, thought was important up to that point. Constant mm. shedding one's skin, like a like a snake in a way, where you wriggle free of this thing that encased you and protected you during that last evolution. And now you're new again. And, and in a way, photography has shown me that aspect of its capacities and my own, my own urges and dimensions. And I think by putting the book together, I saw more clearly the kinds of things that, you know, slowly came aware to me, and then I, I entered this space of them and I, I frolicked for a while and, and then moved. On. Mm-hmm. And, and I tried to put into the book even some of the dead ends that one finds along the way because not every new, um, passion or enterprise is successful. Sometimes you just need to go there in order to get to the next. Place this is just a uh, it 's the hallway you know it isn 't the meadow it 's just you 're in the hallway and it 's a long hallway, and it looks like it 's interesting, but when you get to the end of it, you realize i 've been in the hallway, and it was not really um, fulfilling me, but it was moved along to the next thing and i I think that 's an important consideration for all photographers or artists to take in because. It, it allows for one to not have anxiety. You know, about your creative forces as an artist. I mean, I don't give a shit about that. I mean, photography is endlessly fascinating. You go out in the street. If you're bored, go out in the street. You know, the street will shake you up right away and you'll see something and you'll forget about being bored. So for me, the world was always going to teach me, show me, offer me, you know, seduce me, entice me. And, uh, and 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 you know that's what I try to do with this book was to show that the journey has been filled with uh, promises and um, opportunities, and you make the most of what's dealt, you know, of the hand you're dealt. Mm-hmm. Make the you yeah, have basically.
0: Well, my last question that I ask each of my guests is that they suggest or recommend another photographer that our listeners can go out and discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone who you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why?
1: Two two come to mind, a dead and a living. (laughs) you spare me the two or you only want one? Go ahead. Well, I was asked by Aperture to write a book on Paul Strand's um, garden photographs that he did at the end of his life. And uh, the book is out now. And um, Strand was somebody who had made a few pictures that really were very important to, I think, my generation of photographers, Wall Street and the Blind Woman and, you know, a, a few other portraits like that. and. Uh, and basically, the rest of the work, I didn't really give a shit about it. And 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 the and the garden pictures at the end of his life, I used to think were just, you know, trite flower pictures. Like he had lost his way. But when, over the last few years, as I'm more or less the age that he was when he was making those pictures, I began to see, um, in my own work, certain tendencies to deal with a kind of limited view of nature. And uh, I, since they asked me to write this book, I did a reevaluation both of him, him and myself. And I came to really admire the attack that this man made on photography and age and the questions of dying and saying goodbye to the world with these works. And they, they seem to me to be a profound body of work disguised as something more uh, generic almost. So I, I would say, it, take a look at this book. It's, it's called uh, Orgeval, the, gar- the Gardens yeah. at Orgeval. And the other modern photographer, although there are quite a few younger workers that I I like, I'm I, I'm very uh, moved by Alex Soth, mm. yeah. in in recent years uh, because he's you know he's taken on the view camera and he's taken on um big you know themes, uh, Mississippi River or you know itinerants who are. You know strange characters in the modern American landscape he's beginning to develop a big um, a big vision of America in his time and i'm i'm uh, I'm interested in his sensibility and the risks he's taken and i'm I think he's someone who's uh you know an important younger artist who uh I have great respect for.
0: Well, Joe, so thank you for that. Um, so where can people find out more about you and everything that you're doing? I have a, uh, a Facebook
1: uh, site, like a fan page that I'm, uh, I could send you an email with its address, but it's, I'm on it every day and we're constantly posting interviews with me. Your, your interview will be linked Um, Or you go to the Fiden.com website, they have about a half a dozen videos of me that we made this year that I think are uh, very lively.
0: Well, great. Uh, definitely advise my people here who listen to the show to take advantage of that. But thank you again for your generosity of your time. It's it's always an honor and a pleasure to have the chance to sit down and talk with you. Well, thank you so much, and, and best of luck with, with the book. Hey, Baronex, the
1: same for me with you. It's terrific talking to you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your, your uh, continued support.
0: The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin MacLeod. And this is Ibadian And this is The Candid Frame.